The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, media and technology, entrepreneurs, cuisine, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. And I've always believed, you know, you try to make your money work for you. So I decided to use that money to open a second restaurant because I knew the business. What do I know? Uh, you know, I, could, I probably could open an ice cream store, but you know, I'm in the restaurant business. I know the restaurant business, so I felt comfortable with it. I felt confident enough where I could do a better return than putting the money somewhere else. The story of how a Taiwanese immigrant went from childhood afternoons at his family's Baskin Robbins to bussing tables at a nearby Chinese restaurant in his teenage years to, fast forward to the present, owning a 14-concept Virginia restaurant empire. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me in Henrico, Virginia, in Central Virginia, is Chris Sway, the founder and president of Eat Restaurant Partners. This is a concept in Richmond, Virginia, that now has, what, 12, 13 restaurants and concepts. Uh, he started off as a young boy at his father's Baskin-Robbins as an immigrant and parlayed that into experience as a busboy and some investment capital. And then the next thing you know is he's opening up restaurants left and right, including Osaka, Fat Dragon, Wild Ginger... Boulevard Burgers and Brew, if you've been here in Scott's edition. How are you, sir? Great. Thank you for having me, Robin. You know, it's so whiplashing that as you were writing on the note card all the concepts that you had, you kind of forgot how many concepts you have. And that's where I try to timestamp it for myself. I met you at Osaka a decade ago, and you have, I mean, you've grown, you've, you've rocket shipped from that. Yeah, it's uh, been a great journey. It hopefully continues. Um, been fortunate. Uh, you know, having great people around me, you know, definitely helps. Take me back. You came here from Taiwan as a four-year-old. Correct. To so, the United States. When was that? Oh, gosh. Uh, the year was, let's see, <laughs> 1972 when I landed in Boston and uh, stayed there for about two years. Then my parents bought a Baskin-Robbins franchise in Richmond. So that's how we ended up in Richmond. Hmm. And so the idea was uh, to, to run this kind of as a family business, because all these Richmonders seem to have this legend of Chris Way, the restaurant <laughs> mogul. I used to see him as a young kid after Little League games and everything. Is that that Chris Way? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I you know, worked in the Baskin-Robbins, scooping ice cream. Um, you weren't even tall enough to scoop the ice cream, apparently. No, no. I, when I was not tall enough to scoop the ice cream to reach down to the coolers, you know, my parents would put me to work um, at the end of the nights, you know, would take all the ice cream out and defrost the coolers and they would pick me up and put me in there <laughs> with a rag and I'll, you know, dry everything up and, you know, mop the floors. But yeah. And you were paid in ice cream? That's right. <laughs> you know, tried every flavor there was. So as a, from an immigrant to another immigrant, I mean, my parents always pressed school on me. And uh, yes, I had a job in, in uh, uh, high school and whatnot, but I had to keep my eyes on my grades. How did you juggle the two? Oh, gosh. Um, 
school was definitely very important for my parents. You know, they wanted me to get good grades. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I was probably average um, grades. Juggling everything, it, it wasn't that bad. I mean, my parents definitely gave me the time to do my homework, everything. And, and once I finished, you know, then they would take me to work, usually on the weekends and always during the summertime. All right. So you were there for much of your childhood, but you were also uh, were at Peking on Grove, which now through several evolutions is your Beijing, this slamming Chinese restaurant by the University of Richmond in Tuckahoe. Uh, that started off with you as a busboy with uh, the legendary Dick Du. I understand. Yes. Talk to me about that. And this used to be a grocery store, I think, in the 1950s. That's right, yeah. It was a Safeway or something. Yep, exactly. Um, we still have the original terrazzo floors in there. The original floor, wow. Yeah, the original floors are still wow. there. Um, it, was a, it was a cool story about how we built that restaurant up, um, actually, after I took it over. But yes, my father, <clears throat> selling the Baskin-Robbins, got involved with the Peking restaurants. Um, he bought out uh, Michael Kuo, who was Dick Du's partner at that time. And got out the ice cream business and got into the restaurant business. So he, that's how I got started in the restaurant business. What's interesting is that the immigrant is able to parlay ambition and sweat equity into actual equity. And so you throw, I guess, what, much of the 1970s into the Baskin Robbins in the early 1980s. And it was in a position where he could sell it for a premium and then take the money. And somebody wanted to sell out of a business two miles, three miles south of them. Like, do you remember any of that of that conversation, or that that must have been huge for the family to buy a steak in a thriving Chinese restaurant? Yeah, it was definitely a I, I say a bold move for my for my father. Um, the ice cream store was doing well, Baskin Robbins doing well, and at that time again, Michael Cole, you know, was looking for a buyer and knew my knew my dad, so they came up with a deal for it. But it was definitely a big move for my for my dad. You know, all the money that we've made he made at the ice cream store, you know, put into the, into the restaurant and, you know, and just, you know, working hard. He was work. He worked seven days a week, seven days a week. Oh yes. As a family business. Correct. And so you're there. Did you have any siblings? I had one sister, an older sister. We both worked in the restaurant. So once my dad got involved in the Peking, you know, my first job was dishwashing and then busboy, and waited tables. Um, so yeah, it was a great experience. I loved it. My like favorite. You just, really, you just threw yourself into that filling tea, waiting tables, doing all of this oh, as yeah. a teenager. That's right. Yeah, but that was, I always tell people that my favorite job was being a busboy at the Peking back in the days. <laughs> back in the day, and uh, Richmond was a very different beast back then. It wasn't even common to find a Chinese restaurant or an Indian restaurant. Nothing versus what you see in the year 2022 with you know, Afghan, Bosnian, Korean. You know that it's just exploded over the last decade. Oh yes, yeah. It's uh, Richmond's just been, you know, it's a great market. I mean, it, new things coming. Seems like you starting to see some people opening restaurants again a little bit, but more so during the pre-pandemic. You know, you're you're getting all these different cool cuisines coming in. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Chris Sway. He's the founder and president of Eat Restaurant Partners, which is roughly plus or minus 20 years old. Now, um, it, it took on an official name, I guess, during the Great Recession. But here's the interesting backstory is when I first moved to Richmond, they give you this kind of culinary bucket list thing to do, the, the five or six or seven things you must absolutely eat. You know, Mrs. Yoder's donuts, and uh, increasingly it's kind of gelati celesti this, and always uh, Osaka, which is by the University of Richmond, your sushi and steak concept. The Blue Oyster Cult Roll, the famous kind of oyster and filet mignon and everything. And I was told that you have to wink at the staff. It was like a secret menu. You you know, everybody's like, you must try the Blue Oyster Cult Roll. And I met you there. And 
uh, we struck up a friendship. You invited me to a charity dinner. Uh, you and I worked together on various charity dinners. And since that time, I guess in the year 2011 or 2012, you just relentlessly expanded into so many different concepts. You bought an old derelict used car dealership in Scott's Edition and restored it to its original kind of status as a, uh, you know, Kelly's Jet Burger in the 1950s and 1960s. It's now Boulevard Burgers and Brew. I challenge anyone, if you come to Richmond and you blindfold them and you take them to Boulevard Burgers, they wouldn't know what city they're in. It's a little bit of Vegas. It's a little bit of, obviously, with Wild Ginger, your Southside uh, restaurant is is slammed. You guys have gone into uh Pan-Asian Mexican tacos, you've gone into fried chicken, barbecue. I mean, I lost track uh, to say nothing of, you know, the famous beer sommelier at, at uh, Fat Dragon. It's quite uh, a restaurant empire now. What, 13 concepts? Uh, that's right, yeah. 13, uh, 13 restaurants, 12 concepts. Yeah. What goes in your... So now knowing the full longitudinal, you know, you worked in a Baskin-Robbins as an elementary school kid, you bus tables as a teenager... The, uh, this gets into some inside baseball, but the cost of capital, the potential for capital, what compels you to open up another restaurant? Is it investors coming up to you and saying, Chris, we need more investing inventory? Is it you being really excited by a concept, a demography, studying the neighborhood? Probably a little bit of everything. Um, you know, one thing that sticks out in my mind was when we were looking to do our second Osaka sushi, which is the one at the River Road area that you were talking about. I remember going to the bank wanting to borrow money to open it. You know, the bank, you know, I understand every bank, you know, you need the collateral for it. So they they said, you know, well, if, if you want this amount, you have to have that amount in collateral. And then I thought to myself, well, if I have the money already, then why do I want to borrow money from the bank? So I decided not to borrow money from a bank, so I used my own capital to open up Osaka at River Road. What, your own capital, like retained earnings from the Osaka? How does that work? And let's de-jargonize it for our listeners. We have a public radio listenership. I mean, money that you have, it could be put in a treasury, it could be put in a savings account. Why was it so compelling to put it into a restaurant? Well, so having been my dad's restaurants and having one prior restaurant myself, just knowing the returns, how much money potentially you could make, having the money, so saving the money up. So for me, it was where putting, leaving the money in the bank, you know, what can you do with it? You can put it in the stock market, you could um, maybe buy treasury CDs, but I had, I thought that, you know, I had confidence myself where I thought I could make a better return than putting the money into the stock market or, you know, a CD or, or another vehicle. So that was my thought process was, you know, if the first restaurant, you know, I made, you know, X amount, um, what am I going to do with it? And I've always, you know, believed, you know, you try to make your money work for you. So so I decided to to use that money to open a second restaurant because I knew the business. What do I know? Uh, you know, I, could, I probably could open an ice cream store, but, you know, I'm in the restaurant business. I know the restaurant business, so I felt comfortable with it. I felt confident enough where I could do a better return than putting the money somewhere else. Mm. And how did you make the tough decision to close the Osaka in short pump? I mean, this is a, you know, fisher cut bait, as they say, yeah. right? In the Great Recession, restaurants right. were closing left and right. Capital had dried up. Um, maybe you thought that the, the, the money and the capital and everything and the equipment being used there was better used elsewhere. Yes, it, it did. We, we ended up selling the business during the Great Recession um, financial crisis. The decision came when 
you know, we, you know, we made calls to the landlord. They were unflexible about lowering our rent. Um, and then during a, a period of time where we were actually losing money every month. So to keep it open, you know, it, it costed capital, costed, you know, money on my own pocket. Um, so we decided to go ahead and sell it to an, an existing employee there. Um, she bought it. So it's kind of, you know, a load off my shoulders, if you will. You know, and then having the second Osaka at the River Road Shopping Center, you know, that location held up much better than the one in Short Pump. It's in an upscale area. Correct. It's near the Country Club of Virginia. It's near the University of Richmond. They're, they they sell quite a bit of liquor. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it definitely held up better. You know, it's, um, you know, yes, I think there was the demographics there are great, um, you know, income to support, you know, financial crisis. So I think, I think that helped. So up. what happened around this that then suddenly you start hearing about wild ginger and fat dragon and everything coming out of this financial crisis? There was so much cash flow being thrown off of the restaurants that you started going into turbo mode and opening. I don't understand. Like something happened in that haze that I went from knowing you of Osaka and, and wild ginger to there being 10 restaurants. Yeah. It, it was interesting, you know. You know, again, I, th I think we're we were fortunate to have that Rivero location. It, it was, you know, during the you know again during that uh, recession, I think it held up pretty well. Um, you know, the sales dipped a little bit, but nowhere near what it did in Short Pump. Um, we were still making money. The Wild Ginger one, actually, we opened that up in two thousand and nine. Still r during the crisis. Um, the ball was rolled on that already, you know, loved the site, signed the lease, so we were committed. We opened that up, I, I want to say it was May 2009, mm. so we were still, you know, just probably bottoming out during the recession. And right. um, and people forget how calamitous it was. You had banks failing left and right. I remember in that period, specifically, the stock market had hit a... 15-year low of sorts, and uh, there was worry that Citigroup was going to fail, that the government was bailing out AIG. Very little visibility, very little access to capital. I mean, you had to have uh, a tremendous risk tolerance to open up a restaurant in the haze of the great financial crisis. Yes, it was definitely a risk. Um, I, I, I want to say calculated risk, you know, even though, yes, I think we were committed to open up something at that location, knowing what we did or you know the financials at the Osaka at River Road, and knowing the demographics around the Wild Ginger area again, it's it's a it's a. Um, a you high did study demographics quite a bit to see how replicable was the experience with the Osaka to the Wild Ginger. Correct. Yes, it was. Um, you know, again, a high income, uh, high net worth area, um, very dense residential. Um, so you know, we, we we took the plunge. You know, again, you know, it was no money from the banks. Um, and it turned out well, you know, from, I remember the first month it was, it was okay. We, we, you know, it was, it was good. And then every month it just got better and better and better. And then when we came out of the financial crisis, it just took off. So here's the interesting thing about it. Uh, at what point do you have investors coming to you or people who are such fans of the restaurant concept that they meet the owner and you're the kind of person and your various managers recognize great customers. You bring them an extra dish of something or a bottle of wine. At what point were they saying, could I invest in you? And it's a little bit of maybe the tail wagging the dog. Yeah, we, we're definitely, you know, fortunately, I do have some close friends that wanted to invest. So um, they actually invested in Wild Ginger. Mm. And, you know, 
with openings, you know, some restaurants we took on investors, some we did not. It was more, I remember talking to my CPA, you know, we're getting to the point, this was right before we opened uh, Red Salt. He, you know, he was like, well, prior to that, it was, a lot of it was my capital, you know, funding the openings. And my CPA said, hey, you probably should start taking some risk off the table and bringing on investors. So I thought, oh, that's probably a good idea. So from Red Salt on, we've been taking on um, investors, usually close friends, a close group of people that will invest in, um, most, of, most of the guys would invest in each restaurant coming online. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, you know, to do that, you know, got to prove a track record, um, you know, uh, you know, the right return for the investors. Okay, so as someone, and this is where I, I admit my uh, imposter syndrome, as someone who's dabbled in the pop-up restaurant and truck, food truck business, just to see friends and others, what is the appeal to a prospective restaurant investor? Is it is it being able to say, well, I'm an investor in this restaurant, or is it a true cold-eyed return on capital calculation? I mean, are they saying, I can make this money with a, a, a proven restaurant operator versus putting it in a treasury or putting it in the stock market? What are the what are the pros? I, I think I, the investors that we have, um, I think, yes, I think the return is important to them, but they do like being part of that restaurant. Um, and I, I see a lot of them come in to eat dinner. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it too. You know, they, they like to say, because they live in the neighborhood. Um, but folks, we have a lot of investors at Red Salt that live in the area. I remember I was at the opening and then these. that's when I had the kind of idea. All of these people at Red Salt, which is an enormous sushi and steakhouse concept in a part of what was originally the exurbs, it was farm country, and now it's established as kind of Green Gate, Green Gate Outer Short Pump, Borderline Goochland. And and people were proudly saying that I eat at all of his restaurants, I've had him cater everything, and uh, there were bankers there, there was a wine mogul, and I'm a proud investor in Red Salt. And I kept trying to press them. Uh, look, this is not for the record, but I don't understand. Is he cutting you a dividend quarterly? Is it is it like buying a sports franchise where you only make money in the exit? How does that even work? Oh gosh. Um, well, you know, I I try to you know I, I love following Wall Street, so you know yeah. I see how these companies work and sure. you know, the, the dividends and this and that. But so yeah, so if, if we're profitable, you know, we'll distribute the money. You typically once a quarter, and you know, the investors are you know they, they are real, real owners. They own shares of the the, the company. They have to be patient investors, though. That's the flip side of when you're getting back to what your CPA said, is you could take some risk off the table, some personal risk. The flip side of that is you you don't have control. You don't have full control. If investors get restive, if they want to kind of pull the leash. Well, typically, you know, we keep the majority. So we're always, you know, the majority. And, and all the investors know that, you know, it's it's, it's just the EAT is making the decisions. Um you know, been fortunate to, you know, again, great investors, they, they don't pressure us on anything. They don't, you know, come in and say, hey, put a cheeseburger on the menu because, you know, I like that or anything like that. So they let us run the, run the business as, you know, we see fit. I think the other question was about the return. Yeah. So, I mean, no, in, in, a, in a bad time, and I want to get to the pandemic, for example, where everything suddenly dries up overnight. The, the, the trade-off for that is that you don't have self-determination. It's not like you and your COO can make all the concepts. If you have investors, they're almost limited partners in this. Yes, yeah, in a sense, yes. So they again, they, they're really hands-off. Um, 
they, they, you know, so, so, you know, we usually typically start off um, with no debt because, you know, the investors put in money, you know, I put up some money, and then that pretty much covers the opening. So the returns typically are pretty quick. Um, I guess we have a loyal following of guests where when we open a new place where... They show up. Yeah, they show up. And, you know, we've been fortunate where most of our concepts when we open we you know are busy from day one so that helps a lot and just to illustrate this for our listeners i mean we go back to the thought of osaka and peking and, and you're talking peking you was a busboy and pouring tea into you know ceramic cups and everything now you have a you have an asian mexican concept in juan gonzalez you have its most kind of you know fast casual or casual type taco concept that's come out of that you have this burger concept that's fascinating on the boulevard in Scott's edition in Historic Richmond. Tell me the backstory of that. I even get to Pizza and Brew at, at Carytown. You took over the old bus depot, which was derelict, and some historic properties in this. I mean, if I, you know, Wong Gonzalez and uh, Food Dog, I've literally lost track. Yes. Um, well, uh, Boulevard Burger and Brew was a, was a fun project. Um, it's like you said, it, it was back in the 50s. It used to be Kelly's Jet System Burgers. It actually predated McDonald's. Right. Um, then it became several other renditions after that. So we saw the building. You know, we really liked it. Um, we went the historic route, which was actually rehabbing the building back to exactly how it looked like. So you got the the blueprint and everything for the original Kelly Jet Burger. Well, actually, there was no blueprint. <laughs> we just had to go off a picture. So there's a process you have to go through with the historic tax department to you know qualify. So a lot of it, you know, yeah, they they look at the pictures. You know, we had to put up the red and white checker tiles uh, around the building. You know, the glass we had to use the original glass. So we had to use single uh, pane glass not the double, which is better insulated and better for utilities, but we, we couldn't do that. We had to use these less energy efficient windows because that's what the historic department deemed. So, you know, we, we our, <laughs> our, our uh, electricity and gas bill are pretty high. <laughs> I'm amazed they didn't insist that everybody should smoke in the that's diner right, too, yeah, right? To yeah. take it back. What's amazing to me is that this was a kind of a brownfield industrialized area that completely blew up in Richmond, has a ton of breweries and restaurants. You've opened other restaurants there. And I never stopped to notice it was a it was an abandoned used car dealership by the time you guys got your mitts on it. I guess somebody approached you and said there's a potential opportunity if you can restore it to some of its historic meaning from the 1950s. And you kind of winged it. And it, it is that right now. It feels like a 1950s burger joint in the middle of the boulevard. Yeah, if you drive by, you know, it looks, yeah, it looks like back in the days. And, you know, like I said, we have this big sign that, you know, we, we riffed off the Welcome to Vegas sign and, um, you know, get people pulling over and doing selfies with it. So. <laughs> so, but why burgers? If you were known primarily as an Asian concept and that the restaurants could cross-pollinate and you could do prep at one, and if you bought too much fish for one, you could serve another or you could move the people around, wasn't this way off the reservation for you? It was a little bit. I mean, you know, we so that loca the location called for a burger joint there. Yeah. Um, just, you know, because, again, we went historic route. Um and again, it was the, the original use was Kelly's, you know, just some burger. So we went that route. Now, how, why do we deviate from sushi and Asian concepts? One was probably finding enough chefs to do that. Mm. And the other was that, you know, you know, I love food and I love these different concepts and, you know, love creating. So it was fun to do, you know, burgers and then we did pizza, you know, uh, tacos, steaks. So... 
we kind of had fun with it building the company. And you can tell by a lot of the names. It's <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Could you please just quickly, before we go to break, read the list of restaurants you have now? Yeah, I'll, I'll go in chronological order. Um, so of Osaka Sushi, Wild Ginger, which is our Pan-Asian restaurant, uh, Beijing on Grove, our Cantonese restaurant, The Fat Dragon, which is our, we call our urban Chinese restaurant, Food Dog is our ramen spot, then we have Boulevard Bergen Brew, which we just talked about. Then we have Wong Gonzalez, which is our Asian Mexican um, concept. Wong's not J U A N, but W O N G. Right. <laughs> so again, you know, I had a little fun with that name. Then we open up a Red Salt out in the Shore Pump. Then PBR, which is a Pizza and Beer of Richmond in on the Street. Bus Depot. That's right, Old Bus Depot. Right. That was another historic um, development by by Monument Companies. Then we did fried chicken, we call it Hot Chick, down in Shaco Bottom. Uh, we went back to Shore Pump with Wong's Tacos, again with W-O-N-G, our Asian-Mexican concept. Then we opened up Lucky AF out in Scott's Edition. And then our newest uh, opening is our PBR out in Hanover. Wow. In Ashland. That's right, yes. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Chris Sway, founder and president of Eat Restaurant Partners, a thriving restaurant group in Central Virginia. Please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Special thanks to our NPR member station partner, WVTF Radio IQ, across the great commonwealth. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Sway. He is the founder and let's call him CEO, president of Eat Restaurant Partners. It now has 13 or 14 borderline. I mean, he's always got something under his sleeves, uh, thriving restaurants in the Richmond area and one about to open in in Hanover. Uh, I got to take you back to the other calamity that you guys traversed in addition to the financial crisis was the pandemic. Right? We keep going back in this show to March of 2020 when everything just shut down overnight. We did an episode on business interruption insurance. It's just not widely available. People don't buy it. Did you ever have any planning in your head for civilization just shutting down overnight? Uh, no idea. No idea. <laughs> it was definitely a surprise and um, a shock to my system. What 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 happened, or did you guys did you realize that the CDC was coming down and the WHO and Oh yeah, so once when they um, uh, announced you know we had to close, um, we closed for a little while until they said, hey, you know, food service um, can still do takeout, um, which helped us a lot actually, where we we didn't fully shut the engine off to the to the company to all the restaurants um we kept the engine running uh, at bare minimum just idling. just to keep people employed was that the idea there that too um we knew that we could not employ everyone in the company but we what we did was we we kept all our salaried staff um from our gms to our chefs um and you know to, to our support level so we, we we paid everybody that and um, just, you know, again, kept that engine going. What is your relationship with Carryout, especially that most of that has been subcontracted out to the gig platforms, right? DoorDash, Uber Eats, there are people in and out of it. I understand that this, from the sticker shock, it's it's something that many restaurant owners who've been on the show, like kind of, we have to tolerate it. It's 
an annoyance. It would cost us way too much to do this internally and it wouldn't pay off and it's just become table stakes. You have to partner with these various delivery companies now. That's right. Yeah, I, th I think it's just become part of um, almost a culture, but you know, everybody uses delivery services for um, for food service. Um, it's, it's, it's quite big. So yeah, they do charge a percentage of your sales. Um, <clears throat> at the beginning, it was you know, when they first started, it was pretty large. And now that's gotten more competitive, the rate has come down. But yeah, I think most restaurants don't so like- So here's the deal. If you had your druthers, you mm. wouldn't be doing uh, so many deliveries from a restaurant. You would like the couple to come in and order glasses of wine and cocktails and go appetizer soup to nuts all the way up to the ice cream sandwich, right? That is a profitable impression not really kind of you know deliver me rice and chicken and broccoli and pay a 30 percent surcharge on top of that correct so you know if, if some if a guest came in to dine in you know it's great and same thing with if they came in to pick up their takeout with us would be great too you know i think just you know all the deliverers doordash uber east all these guys you know um anywhere from you know up to 30 percent of your sales goes to these companies which you know, they, that money goes, it doesn't stay in Richmond. It goes to the corporations, um, you know, wherever they are. And typically you get a better price on your pickup if you do pick up at the location instead of going through Uber Eats. And, and a lot of restaurants have internal order apps where you can order and, and go pick up. Mm. So uh, was, was there another kind of crisis mode thinking where you had to think about, God, what do we shut down here? What do we do delivery? What do we do full service? As we were coming out of this, it's now been a two and a half year long pandemic and mask mandates and subvariants and everything. How did you plan through that? And how did you grow through that? Oh, gosh. Um, I think one thing that helped us stabilize, again, was you know, we stayed open. Um, the takeouts did help. We, 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 we knew we had to do every location had to do takeout. You know, there were some that probably didn't do as well as others. Um, you know, we found out during the pandemic that a lot of food, like sushi did real well, Chinese, um, any, I, I would think any ethnic restaurant did real well, Indian food, um, you know, Thai food. It's just it's something, it's something that a lot of people don't cook or don't know how to cook at home. So that did, that held up really well. Um, you but know, it's the, not like you're delivering a ton of cheeseburgers. No, no, we weren't. But but with the liquor laws changed during the pandemic, you were delivering boozy milkshakes. Correct. <laughs> now, this has apparently been a huge... And boozy milkshakes, your burgers and brew thing on the boulevard has become known for that in tater tots, like a late night treat along the boulevard in Richmond. Did you guys lobby to have kind of the delivery or carry out liquor laws change? Because as I understand from... The, the the chefs and restaurant owners we've had on that was a true lifeline. Oh yeah, um, you know we we've we've had talks. You know they were great. Um, you know a lot of associations you know kept in touch with restaurant owners and asked what they th thought. And yeah, all of us were on board for you know getting alcohol to go. So it, it definitely helped. Chris, talk to me about um, the various inflationary shocks we've now felt. I mean, I guess in your adult lifetime, we've never felt inflation like this. There was that bout in 2008 when gas prices shot up to $4 a gallon. Nominally, food prices shot up as well. Now it's actually shocking. You you know, we have a mutual friend who has a diner and he says the price of eggs has tripled, for example, in two months. The availability of ham or certain inputs you know, our friend Karina has not been able to normally source enough oxtail from Jamaica because of various pandemic shutdowns. And on top of that, 
getting people to go back to work in the great resignation, that this has been a huge tug of war for restaurant owners. Yeah, it's been a, a double whammy. <laughs> you know, really, you know, getting the, the, the labor is probably our, our most difficult issue right now, you know, getting enough people to come to work. Um, you know, inflation, you know, is big too. You know, some items tripled, um, you know, oil prices gone, you know, cooking oil's gone up. Um, I didn't know, even realize cooking oil. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's about OPEC oil. It's, it's, it's more than doubled, um, probably tripled almost. Uh, but yeah, pretty much everything across the board has gone up. So how do you decide how and when and how much to pass prices down to your customers? Yeah, that's, that's been a difficult decision. You know, we, during, uh, last year was a little bit easier. We raised prices um, a lot of, I will say, almost no guests complain about rising prices at, at restaurants. Um, now we're seeing, you know, people are, might be a little more sensitive to what they're paying for now. And, you know, just got an email today from our distributor, food distributor, that, you know, would be on the lookout for potato prices. They're going to probably be spiking in the next, up to August, because there's going to be a shortage. So that means French fries are going to be more expensive. You know, gosh, I mean, I remember we were charging you know, two ninety nine or three ninety nine for fries. Now you got to charge five or six ninety nine for French fries. Um, but yeah, we you know we have to manage the our costs. Our you know our two biggest for any restaurants are typically you know your cost of goods and labor. So you know those two are the biggest things to manage. So outside of the minimum wage, what is the effective kind of clearing price for good labor right now? Do you have to to get a great a server to come in or a host do they have to be i mean what this is the number that everybody's trying to realize it's like 15 the new 12 is 20 the new 15 yeah you know i think restaurant in the restaurant side in the hospitality side you know we, we're, we're not you know seeing wage increases you know five seven eight percent ten percent you know we're raising wage more so hourlies by 20 30 40 percent so that's been a little bit harder to manage where food prices, you know, you can you can kind of manage that a little bit to a degree. You, you know, you, you might select a s different type of French fries. It might be a little more cost effective. Or a different or, cut of beef. Correct. Or, yeah. And you might adjust your menu prices on that. And of course, you know, when you adjust menu prices, you know, it, it helps with labor also. But but labor has been probably the hardest thing to, to control. Mm. Well, talk to me in the few minutes we have left, Chris, about taking this concept more regional or national. I mean, you see these other publicly traded companies. One has the ticker EAT, right? What was it? Brinker was and Darden yeah. <laughs> and others and restaurant groups and, and, and mega regional restaurants that end up getting acquired by national restaurant operators. Are you content just staying in Virginia? Well, we would like to one day get out of Richmond. Um, you know, we might try one or two concepts and try it outside of Richmond, but um, yeah, probably a couple years away. From a distribution perspective, so even going to Hanover, right, Ashland, at least you could still count on the restaurants you have in Richmond and Henrico, which are, what, 40, you know, 40 minutes away or something, and you could cross-pollinate. But if you suddenly were to go to Northern Virginia, it's a different beast, for example. Correct, correct. Yeah, so, you know, it's a completely different market, and I think every market is a little different. Um you know, people that come to Richmond, you know, they say, oh, this is much, so much different than, say, uh, D.C. or Maryland or, you know, North Carolina. Um, but, yeah, we, we, we want to eventually test some of our concepts outside. What about the concepts, the, the hot things that have popped out of this pandemic, the ghost kitchens and the food halls? Yes. Right. They're a little kind of related, but a little antipodal. And ghost kitchens is the ultimate anonymous warehouse 
you can bring in fly-by-night concepts, permanent concepts, regional concepts, and centralize receiving and uh, a central concierge for all the DoorDash drivers and everything and innovate intensively and close things down and, you know, yeah, we well, a lot. Yeah, you know, we're, we're definitely adjusting our future openings to more areas where, you know, takeout, deliveries, pickup, things like that. Um, you know, there are, there are restaurants now that have ghost kitchens within their kitchens. So somebody can come and take over the spare capacity that you have and just pay you a fraction and just churn out a lot of Correct. carry out food. Yeah, I, I believe, um, I think I just read this, that the TGI Fridays now has a, a sushi ghost kitchen oh, wow. inside TGIF, so they can you know serve sushi. Um, yeah, food halls are popular. We're actually getting ready to do a food hall concept, um, hopefully open sometime next year. So the concept with the food hall is that a lot of uh, selection and diversity, and you can walk in. I mean, it's kind of like the hawker stalls in Singapore where you 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 don't want to just settle for a menu, but you kind of do want to sit down. It's not too formal. It's not too informal. Correct. Yeah, it's it's, it's a it's a great spot for people to come hang out. Um, you know, try different foods, uh, different beverages, and you know, and, and entertainment also. Chris Sway, in closing, if you you know, it's that's a little cliche, but there are people out there who are trying to parlay sweat equity into a dream of restaurant ownership. If you were talking to yourself. At the turn of the century, or if you're talking to someone else out there, a teenager who's working tables and trying to save up money and trying to buy a steak in a restaurant, what are kind of the best practices, what you've learned, the one thing you knew back then that you definitely know now? Ooh, good question. Um, definitely hard work. Um, you know, you're going to have to put in the, you know, the sweat into it. Um, you know, and, and bet on yourself. You're betting on yourself. Because, you know, you, after all, right now can bet on the stock market and other things. You are on the side a sophisticated investor, but a, a very important theme was betting on yourself. You knew something about yourself that kind of was your inside edge. Yes. So I, I do think, you know, learning that business, you know, don't just, you know, if you wanted to do a um, furniture company, you know, I would say go work in a furniture company first. Don't just open one up. You want to get in the restaurant business, you know, work in the restaurants. Um you know, try to get involved as much as possible with every position. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a risk, you know, just like any business. But to me, I always, I always say, at the end of the day, it's a business. Um, you have to make the numbers work for it to, to survive. Chris Sway, finally, you came on my show. I'm, I'm grateful uh, to you, sir. Chris Sway, founder and president of Eat Restaurant Partners. Gosh, Osaka, Wild Ginger, Boulevard Burgers and Brew, Red Salt, uh, Juan Gonzalez, it, it never ends. And every time I catch up with you, you need to actually write down the number of concepts you have because it's sprawling. Thank you for joining us. Please come back on. Yeah, thank you, Robin. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, please stay with us. If you are just joining us, we were talking to Virginia restaurant mogul Chris Sway. Chris actually introduced me to the story of Nightingale ice cream sandwiches, which we showcased in a special 2019 live show at the University of Richmond. The brand has since exploded in popularity across the country. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are live with Nightingale Ice Cream Sandwiches. <laughs> live from the UR's Robin School Business, the mashup crazy dessert seemingly everyone on the East Coast is talking about. The husband-wife chef team behind this RVA bread phenomenon traversed pretty unusual roads to get here, including marine mess halls, Belgian recipes linked back to King Leopold himself. Yeah, my grandfather. 
and even the town's best burger. You're going to want to stick around for this story. Do stay with us. Joining me on stage at the University of Richmond's, wait for it, wait for it, Robin School of Business, is the couple behind Nightingale Ice Cream Sandwiches, the dessert seemingly everyone on the East Coast is talking about. Hannah Pollock and Xavier Mears, the husband-wife culinary team that's been slinging these thick sandwiches for three and a half years. Welcome. Thank you. All right, another dad joke-laden anecdote. I met this wonderful couple at a live show that I did in October called Ace the Midterms, which we had two chefs come and do, and we had the correspondence visit from NBC and CBS and ABC. And I thought the chefs, I just gave them agency to bring their own dessert. And so they ordered 250 ice cream sandwiches. And next thing I see is people leaving the dining room and being regaled by this couple and he's cutting things off and drizzling them with, with uh, you know, bourbon glaze and nonpareils and everything. And I'm thinking that they're, okay, they're employees of this massive conglomerate, Nightingale. And I go up to Xavier, I was like, this is amazing. You know, I, I've been trying to look for the fat Elvis sandwich. Do you know about the fat Elvis sandwich? Like, there would not be a fat Elvis without me. <laughs> I'm the fat Elvis. I mean, we used to call him the fat Elvis, but... The upshot is that they were stealing like Christmas gigs. Clients were hiring them left and right. It was so busy, and I, I met this charismatic couple, and I said, we have to have a dedicated show on them. So, and here it is. Uh, I want to know when you guys met. Take me back to your original Richmond story. Do you want to well, start? Well, we met 10 years ago. So Xavier came over from Belgium 10 years ago to open uh, Belle V, which is his first restaurant. And 10 years ago, I was still in culinary school, and I went to his restaurant, and I was uh, making the salads and desserts. Mm -hmm. um, I was 22, and um, I just worked with him, and I worked my way up to be his sous chef, and we were, worked together for five years. Um, and we had just the best time working together and cooking together, and that's how we first met. So, uh, you know, fast forward to Cafe Bruxel, which was when I next heard about Xavier. If I remember, I go back and look at the clips in 2015 and 2016. There was this burger that everybody talked about um, south, I mean, east of the museum district. And then it was no longer. What happened? Yeah, I, I was a little sad because I came from Belgium and tried to cook a lot of fancy food. And uh, everybody talked about this burger. So when I opened Brussels Cafe, I cook mussels and burger because that's what everybody want here. And I was super happy. I'm on the stand after and then all my fancy little food don't make any sense. They just want a good meat, good burgers, and I make this burger with all the shit that I have from like ribeye or filet mignon. So like and when I, you, trim, when you trim the, the filet and ribeye, yeah. you have a lot of leftover meat. And so we would grind that into... That made the best meat in yeah. the world. So you got little bits of filet and little bits of ribeye in the burger. Plus we would add ground beef into it and then... And a lot of truffle. Yeah. That's why we want the best burger in Richmond. Yeah. So you would think this would continue. It was getting great buzz. What about the, we've talked about it before, the uh, economics of the restaurant business. That location um, in the kind of the nether region of Main Street was kind of cursed in the past. It was at Peacock Cafe, these other places. Um, it's kind of like the Willow Lawn of Venerable. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great neighborhood. No, no, no. I have, I have a lot of fun. In that place, we have a lot of fun. I mean, I have because you. She quit my place for be her own chef. 
At Bellevue, I left yeah. because I wanted to be a chef on my own, and I wanted to just strike out on my own, and so I left, and I wanted, I just left to be a chef on my own, so Bruxel's Cafe was just him. You didn't give him an ultimatum at Bellevue and say, make me... Well, there was no place I could go. It was either chef or quit. Did you beg her to stay? (laughs) No way. (laughs) And she quit. So, no, it it was fun. But you quit on amicable terms? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, we were together. We got married. I kick her out. Yeah. That's not true. That's not true. I left. And you went to Greenleaf Pool Room? Well, I was at a restaurant in, Ch- in Chester called Divine. And it was a European restaurant. And then I left because I wanted to come to the city where it was all happening. Stole all my recipes? Again, not true. <laughs> <laughs> I took some recipes. Just but I made, I, I made them better. It was better. <laughs> So, if I may ask, when did you come, uh, become an item, as it was? An item. <laughs> I'm glad I don't understand uh, English. Uh, <laughs> a what? And when it has a certain together, je ne sais quoi. I don't have the word for it, but anyway. When did we start being together? No comprende. Yeah. It was, it's a little scandal. I think it's uh, right yeah. after Bellevue, when, uh, when she tried uh, going on your own, and we started dating, and we have a lot of things in common, and, you know, sharing a lot of you time. You wanted to but make sure I that stayed. If, if we dance, still private. Okay. All right, fine. <laughs> I won't go there. You're Belgian. I didn't think this was, like, church and state stuff. But anyway. Um, oh, European. <laughs> European, yes. So... This ice cream sandwich, I understand you lost the lease or it came up, it was due on Bruxel Cafe, and you were kind of at a fork in the road. Do I want to do this? Do I want to take on the... Oh, no. For be honest, Anna, every time then she come home for new special, she's always asking me for my advice. And uh, she came that night with a cookie. It was a brownies cookies with vanilla ice cream on top. And she asked my opinion and said, do you think I should sell that on special uh, for this weekend? And I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) this is the best ice cream I never had for a long time. Plus that little thing of cookies was really good. What was special? What was unique about that? Well, I think it's because it was all by hand. Every cookie for the first year, you know, I made every cookie that we ever did. And so every cookie we would make the doughs in a little tiny KitchenAid uh, in the back of Greenleafs where I was the chef. I would roll out every single cookie, and it was all by hand, and it was all locally sourced, uh, just like what we do now. So Greenleafs was selling these? Yes, as a dessert, yeah. And so it became almost like a side spin-off business. Exactly, yeah. Were people asking for this by demand, like if you'd run out? Exactly, So I made it as a dessert option on the menu, and I took it to Xavier, and he was like, let's try to sell this. Let's just see what we can do with it. And so we got the packaging. Uh, we, we just got the labels for it. And he went to Chiaka's, which was our first customer ever. So I do some great writing there. It's a great yeah, sandwich in the museum district. Yes. It was a great time because he's looking for a new desert. 
It's a sandwich spot. You do everything, you know, from scratch over there, really small stuff. And I'm like, dude, if you want something, let's create a, some, let's create a sandwich together. And so what was it just, the, the first sandwich was just the, the, the plain vanilla? Uh, well, the first sandwich at Greenleafs was the classic, which was a chocolate brownie cookie and then a vanilla ice cream. And then the one that we made for Chiaka's was peanut butter cup, which is a peanut butter ice cream chocolate cookie and it was half dipped in chocolate. And that was a special flavor for Chiaka's. May I ask you, Carnival that Chase, was it at that point when you were using the Cuisinart and everything, even a profitable use of your time? Or are you just kind of building it out to build buzz? I mean, we, we have restaurant entrepreneurs who talk about doing the pop-up as a loss leader just to build interest and buzz and get the word out. And then at some point, you're at critical mass. You engage a commercial kitchen. Were you doing this as a hobby when you were collecting a paycheck? At first, yeah, for sure. I mean, oh, we the, don't collect yeah. any paycheck. Though. At first, I mean, we we did this in between our other jobs. Like we, I would come in at like two or three in the morning, make the ice cream, make the cookies, make the sandwiches, do my chef job. He would deliver in between his lunch and dinner shifts at Bruxelles Cafe. It was a great time. <laughs> we missed that time. <laughs> We miss that time so much. No sleep at how do you, all. Hold up. How do you account for this? You, so you, you keep it kind of in a bucket as a hobby because you have two paying jobs. You have employees. You have people you're dealing with. Do you just say, I'm going to test this out, and if it starts pulling me more, at some point I'm at a fork in the road where I decide to maybe leave my job? It's kind of the entrepreneur's dilemma. Well, I think, I think we just... We never think about yeah, that, right? We just always did it as it came. And so we were passionate about it. We started to sell it. And as it started to grow, we realized that there was a choice. You know, we could try and do both and keep it small, or we could take that leap, quit our jobs, and do this full time and, and just take it where it could go. And that's what we did when it got to that point. It, it so was the right time. So, so seize on this moment. We do this a lot. And, um, it gets into the nitty-gritty a lot of times. People in the food service industry don't want to talk about financials and the economics. Were you cash rich? Did you have savings on the side to kind of bootstrap this? What was that conversation like where like, you know, honey, the Belgian love of my life, uh, we're going to take a flyer on this. We're going to have to get a small business loan. Walk me into that. You can't just decide, okay, if I want to ramp this up, where does that money come from? Well, we, I tell her to sell yeah. your car first. You sell your car because we need some cookies made. So she said, yeah. car, don't mind. We just did it ourselves. I mean, we, every, everything that we had, we put into it. So our paychecks from our, from our jobs, yeah. we put it into it. What is really exciting with what we have, we start with nothing. We create 20 ice cream sandwiches for Chiacos. When he gave me my check, I said, hey, Anna, I have 120 bucks. So <laughs> we're going to make... 200 ice cream sandwiches. And we just start like that, really. We really start like that three years ago. That was a flashback to my May 2019 live show with the founders of Nightingale Ice Cream Sandwiches. You can listen to the entire episode. We called it Sandwiched Together on your favorite podcatcher. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and multimedia producer Evan Hunter. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. And you can follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Friendster, whatever you like at handle fulldradio. And my DMs are always open. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. 
back with you next week. 